as we look at this text here, I'm reminded of something that happens every Christmas time for probably most of us. At Christmas time, there is a claymation version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that I never watch, but I always see bits and pieces of it on TV somewhere. Uh, and there is one of my favorite characters in there, Yukon Cornelius. The, the, he says, the greatest prospector of the north. You remember his crazy voice? He's always screaming. Um, but this, I'm reminded of this because in, in one point in the movie, they're on an iceberg and they hit their destination. And he says, land ho. And I think of the Ethiopian eunuch here. He's being preached the gospel and then he's believing these things about the Messiah. And he goes, water ho. He's ready. He's ready to be baptized. And so <clears throat> this is just something silly that I <laughs> thought that you might need in your brain too. So this is the time whereby <clears throat> we have seen that the gospel was preached. We tried to lay out what would be consistent from Isaiah 53 and 56, um, especially really the only place in the Old, Old Testament that I know of where the, the eunuch is brought into uh, fellowship with God fully, uh, which was forbidden him in, in the law because of some of the physical deformities that could, could be there <clears throat> or that were there. And now this man hearing the gospel sees water and wants to undergo Christian baptism. <clears throat> now, the, w today in our text, we're not going to cover very much scripture, not like we did last time. We're going to be more application heavy. But I do want us to just know a couple things. The, f the first thing that we see in verse 36 as it comes to baptism, he asks, well, why, what's preventing me or what would hinder me from being baptized? Let me just say a word about baptism. Uh, we need to understand that baptism, that word that we have in English, is not a translation of the word. It's not a translation. It's what we call a transliteration. Okay, You just basically take the letters that are in Greek, baptizo, and you put English letters for those. So the beta is a B in English. And so you write B. The alpha is an A. The P or the pi is, is a P in English. So and such and so forth. That is just writing down the Greek word in English. Okay, so if you're going to do that, I think perro, perro is dog in Spanish. You would just write P-E-R-R-O or something like that. I don't speak Spanish, so <laughs> I don't know that. But you just write the English letters there. That's what baptism is. It's not what it means. <clears throat> Why is that? <clears throat> well, let me just say a couple things. First of all, the translation of the word by and large in the New Testament would be and should be plunge, dip, immerse. You could even say it's submerge, something like that. That's the meaning of baptizo, 
It's what, it's what the word means by and large. <clears throat> Further, we should recognize that when we run across, this is not the only one, but when we run across other words in the New Testament that are transliterated, we might think of just some of the names there in Scripture or some other things. A lot of them are related to, to ceremony, to things that are ceremonies. They're, they're transliterated because they're preserving a certain kind of of a theological connotation or theological connection. So for example, <clears throat> you might you might translate it washing in some cases or cleansing. But for us English speakers, it's hard for us to think of washing or or cleansing in a theological reality. Uh, it's hard to connect washing for us to ritual washing. And so <clears throat> A lot of translators in the past have decided to, because of the, the ritualistic type of context that we have it in, this is a Christian ordinance that's commanded, it's transliterated to preserve the fact that there is the, the observance of a, a ceremony, as it were, a, a ritual. <clears throat> Baptism, you know, was not practiced in the Old Testament, and it, it comes into view with John the Baptist, who's, who's baptizing in the Jordan, anticipating the Messiah to come. He's preaching about the Messiah to come, and he's baptizing people in the Jordan. And so now at this time, it's well established what baptism is, <clears throat> and so everybody knows. But in order to understand the range of, of meanings, <clears throat> um, you, need, you need more either translator notes in the in the footnotes, some sort of commentary from the ESV, if you have an ESV study Bible or something like that, or a preacher. That's that's the advantage of my job. I don't have to make that choice. I get to say all the things. <laughs> so baptism is a ritual uh, to be observed, <clears throat> and he asks the question, which I want to focus on now: what What prevents me? What hinders me from being baptized? is what is asked in verse 36. <clears throat> now, most modern translations that you have out there does not have a verse 37. You'll notice that it goes from verse 36 to verse 38. By the way, verse references are, are super, super, super late. <laughs> that's, a, that's a modern invention for us for referencing. But <clears throat> the, only, the only version that I saw that retains verse 37 is the New, New King James Version. Um, and it does that in error, but that's a translational thing that they do. <clears throat> verse 37, we should recognize that sometimes when we see a, a verse not there in terms of going from verse 36 to 38 is because in some manuscripts um, uh, there is that rendering or that uh, writing. You'll know that every single manuscript up until... A time of the printing press was all hand copied. And so you'll have things where people have made human errors, whether of sight or of other sorts of things. Um, the data that we have now is very clear that the earliest reading of this is the 6th century. It doesn't, it doesn't happen in the earliest and best manuscripts. And it's isolated to what's called the Western text. So the other two text types that are predominant, it doesn't show up. 
So it's not like it occurs early and it's widespread in its reading. It's in one isolated stream of translation. So along the way, uh, even really early in the second century, it comes about, but the um, the the widespread reading of this would happen in the sixth century, so much much later than most of the other earliest manuscripts. <clears throat> and so we should not consider this scripture. We could we should consider it. Uh, that is verse thirty seven. We should consider it as the normative Christian tradition that was in place at the time. In fact, in many places where we have this, especially. Um, Especially in the New King James, you'll find this a lot. Things that'll be um, there that won't be in other manuscripts is, <clears throat> is they, wanna, they want to keep everything in <laughs> um, rather, than, rather than taking out things that we know for sure aren't, aren't there in early manuscripts. Um, but the interesting thing is that this um, is quoted in Irenaeus against heresies. If you were a good theologian in the day, you wrote one of your first things that you wrote to get on the map is a, a railing against Gnosticism. <laughs> you had to write your treatise against Gnosticism. Irenaeus, who had a Western text, quoted this, uh, and uh, this was this was there. Um, but notice <clears throat> that what was common in the day though this is not scripture, what was common in the day is for there to be some sort of assessment of, of getting a clear profession of faith from the person being baptized. This is what we have in Baptist tradition, uh, that we baptize upon a profession of faith. I'd covered that in a previous sermon so I won't rehash it now. <clears throat> and so also think about his question. What prevents me from being baptized? Well, the eunuch's question implies that there are good and legitimate reasons so as to prevent, present, uh, prevent somebody from being baptized. Namely, that, well, they themselves personally don't believe that the, the, uh, Jesus is the Messiah of Isaiah 53 or 56. If he didn't believe in the gospel, he didn't believe the truth that, that Jesus has come to be the savior of the world, well, we would, we would hinder him because he has not begun to believe the fundamental truth of the scriptures, that is, Christ Jesus himself and our union with him, which is what is pictured in baptism, is the thing that one must personally believe in order to be saved. It's a sacrament. It is a ritual that says the only way that I am right with God is through the death of this Christ and his resurrection, his death for my sin and his resurrection uh, that I will partake in because I am united to him by faith. <clears throat> One must personally believe in Jesus. And in this way, baptism is, is like a door into the membership of God's church. No one knows you're a Christian until you've been baptized. You've undergone obedience for Christ because this is what he has commanded. <clears throat> we also notice in verse 38 here, he commanded the chariot to stop and they go down into the water, both of them. 
And then they, in verse 39, come back up out of the water together. We notice that um, unlike some modern traditions of sprinkling or pouring via a water flask, the, the eunuch knew that the proper mode of baptism is not through sprinkling or through pouring, but rather through immersion and Philip is a deacon in the church, so he has some church authority. I think I don't want to push on that too hard, but it would be good for an authority in the church to be baptizing as well. <clears throat> now, since we have a number who have a, a Reformed uh, Presbyterian type background, and I've clearly presented a Baptist view, I wanted to uh, apply something here for you. These are conversations that the elders have had together regarding the issue of membership and baptism. And I think right now, although I am moving into application and how we should live life together um, and not preaching the text as long as I normally do, I think it's important for everybody to know at least where the elders stand, though I would hope that you guys come to the same sorts of conclusions as us. We have agreed that Although this congregation is is Baptist in regard to its teaching ministry, we think it's necessary to to embrace an idea called Reformed. And I do say Reformed. I don't mean other things. Reformed Catholicity. You know, Catholic Catholic means universal. Uh, So there's, there's universality in terms of our Reformed faith. There are those who... um, this, this means, let me say it this way, this means that the elders would like to welcome into membership those who are historically from Reformed churches, which um, historically is very, very uncommon. That is because the difference, there are waters that divide, as it were. There is an issue of baptism that the, the Reformed, uh, before Reformed Baptists, uh, the Reformed hold to infant baptism, and Baptists historically, of course, do not, uh, something called credo-baptism or believer's baptism. <clears throat> and so what we would like to propose, and I would like to say as application, is despite that difference uh, that that is between us, I think that... Uh, even more broadly in California, even, that all Presbyterian churches, especially small Presbyterian churches or Reformed churches, you could say Dutch Reformed or all the other variations, uh, we, should, we should really seek to do ministry together. Uh, I think that a Reformed Baptist congregation or one who is moving that way, such as ourselves, should uh, join hands with other Reformed believers and figure it out in regards to baptism, be universal in this spot, and not require, as is usually the case, not require a change of position in this regard. Okay? Now, this is very uncommon. This is not typical historically or now. So I want to give you an example of the normal position that, that our elders currently have talked about that we, that we don't hold to. John MacArthur, all of you are familiar, so I want to use their church, Grace, Grace Church in Southern California, <clears throat> uh, published on their website. You can go and read this. 
Under their FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions, does Grace Community Church affirm as members, brothers and sisters who have not been baptized as believers, including brothers or sisters who have only been baptized as infants? Here's their answer. Grace Community Church does not affirm as members, brothers and sisters in Christ who have not been baptized as believers. We are aware that many brothers and sisters view their infant baptism as biblical. However, we are convinced of the testimony of Scripture that baptism is to occur after one has made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord, thus excluding infant baptism. Um, they also hold that, that if you have ideally not undergone full immersion, then you have to be, I think, what I would call rebaptized. Two, <clears throat> although I think they are correct, biblically speaking, I, I think, and, and I think other positions are in error, according to the teaching of Scripture, I'd also contend that if we can recognize as true brothers and sisters, those who are Reformed who disagree with us on this point, as Grace recognizes that these are brothers and sisters, that we should also be able to join forces together and be members in the same congregation because the the commonalities are way more than maybe other churches. I am a jokingly like a Presbyterian light <laughs> or or like a Presbyterian heavy, depending on how you want to work that. Um, essentially, we agree and firmly hold to the same gospel. Um, we also. Um, have way more in common than general evangelical churches as a whole. Um, we also view baptism the same way that baptism itself does not regenerate like the Catholics or the Christ of church people, and it does not justify us either. So we're in agreement, um, but we decide to apply the sign of baptism at a different point in time. And so <clears throat> I think in the midst of a culture war, an all-out culture war, it is wise for us to be able to say that we all have inconsistencies and overlook this particular area, though we should never stop striving for the biblical ideal. Don't worry, everybody's a Baptist in heaven. Now, I also want to say the opposite. I, I think that it's <clears throat> this, in saying this, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Uh, most know that I am fairly rigid in terms of scripture. And so what I don't want to communicate is the level of compromise that the evangelical church as a whole makes in many, many other areas. We, we should not be minimalistic in what we require theologically. We should not be minimalistic in what we pursue in terms of our, our, uh, what we hold to together. <clears throat> it is the case that there are, are many, even very large named people known as uh, pillars in evangelicalism who who are willing to make all sorts of other fundamental compromises that, that we ought not to make either. <clears throat> so what we, are, what we should not strive for is the, is the lowest common denominator Christianity either. I'm saying a principled 
joining together with people who are theologically aligned and who are 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 rigorous though disagree in this area so what i want to to say is that in our day and age we have by and large even represented in our statement efca statement quite frankly we have by and large um a lowest common denominator view uh, promoted. I, I don't think this is correct in the long term, and we should look at it addressing these things. But <clears throat> when we seek to uh, make the tent of, of our faith as wide as, as humanly possible, what we end up doing is the outworking of this people get the idea that the Bible is very limited in its scope and it addresses things that are very narrowly related to salvation and not much else. Individual salvation even and not much else. It's, it's rampant through our, especially Baptist life, that, that we have so narrowed the scope of, of what... <clears throat> We preach and teach that that there are so many things that <clears throat> other generations just took for granted that that are being challenged. We'll talk about one here in a second. If we seek to be lowest common denominator Christians, the, the this becomes a functional challenge to the sufficiency of Scripture. I know that might not have made sense, so I'm going to explain it. Sufficiency of Scripture means that the Scripture is sufficient to answer questions or to equip us for certain things. Now, now, most all Baptist churches will say, yeah, the Scripture is sufficient to get us to heaven. Beyond that, we're not sure. And this is completely wrong the Bible is extremely clear that the scripture is sufficient for all of life to equip us for every good work that we might be complete. For example, scripture is able to equip us for every single deed or science project that we ever do in all the sciences, whether medicine or astronomy or car or vehicle maintenance farming, etc. The the Bible is also sufficient to help us navigate artificial intelligence. The Bible is sufficient to tell us what we must do and not do in parenting. The Bible is sufficient to tell us how we might legis- how we must legislate and how we must not legislate in government spheres. It is sufficient to tell us what we must know in every area, how we must dress, and the like. The, the scriptures give us the necessary information that we might live all of life, even down to its minute and menial details. And some of those we leave up to conscience, of course. Our, our dress, <clears throat> for example, is is a, a conscience issue, but it's not only a conscience is, issue because modesty is required both from men and women. 
So the Bible addresses every single area of our lives and leaves us in never out of range of making good biblical application. But if you pursue lowest common denominator, not, not principled, uh, not, not principled like, okay, we'll, we'll work together on this one uh, in a couple areas. <clears throat> but if you pursue the opposite, really the lowest common denominator, what you will end up doing is you will let the culture determine the answers to all those questions. We will let the culture tell us how we should dress, how we shouldn't dress. We'll let the culture tell us all sorts of different things, the relationship of men and women and their roles in church and in society. People won't stop coming up with answers to the questions. They'll just come up with American cultural answers that are not biblical. We cannot do this. We must be rigorously committed to the Bible. And so what, what I want to do is to show you what, um, this is extended application, as you know, different maybe than most, most of my other sermons. But <clears throat> I just feel it's absolutely necessary to have an answer for us in, in this regard. The, the problem that we see, the most common problem in conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical churches that we run across who, who've got this issue wrong. They, they want to lower and lower and lower and lower and lower and lower and lower the bar. <clears throat> what the problem becomes is that modern ideas then constrain what the Bible is allowed to say or what the pastor is comfortable to say. There are hot button issues in the culture which the pastor will get fired for dealing with. Because we want the lowest common denominator. So churches will divide over masks and vaccines and things like that. That happened a bunch in 2020. <clears throat> and obviously, you know what we said. <clears throat> in our day, a common modern cultural thing that has heavily influenced all of our society and has crept into the church is feminism. So I'm going to rail against feminism for a minute. Feminism. Feminism is a sinful ideology that con constrains many modern Christian minds, even Bapti uh, Baptist and, and Presbyterian alike, Baptist and Presbyterian alike, so that we feel the need to whitewash distinctions between men and women. That's why you have the confusion that we have in our culture. <clears throat> so we, we flatten out the distinctions between the two and we say, oh, they're equal in every way. So it's, it's common for typical evangelicals who, who even hold the correct view of the roles of man, men and women to, before they answer a question in a formal setting, to qualify their answer to death so that no one feels offended by the time they tell the truth. <clears throat> so I, I watched a man that I, I, do, I respect lately. He'll go um, unnamed at this point, but I heard him uh, ask the question like, why were none of the apostles women? 
And uh, you could see him just sitting in his seat, like getting really uncomfortable to say the real basic answer that's obvious from, from Scripture. Well, women, women aren't authorities over men, of course. That's, that's what the Bible teaches. Men are the authority. So, for example, you have, <clears throat> let me just say it this way. On the one hand, there's, there's the temptation to qualify our positions to death. <clears throat> and then there's also, on the other hand, many of the church members in those churches and very many churches who get their panties all in a bunch because you say directly, 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. It's not complicated. <laughs> it's really not complicated. <clears throat> but when we start making the culture our standard and we want, when we want to appease everybody, then what happens is we, we lose sight of what the truth is and how we ought to operate and what we must do. It leaves a vast sea of confusion for people in knowing how to even be married properly, how to, how to do their lives on a daily basis. But the Bible provides absolute clarity in places like this, whereby we must be extremely firm. So someone might say, and I can picture people in my head, they say, well, uh, I I can picture good friends of mine who might say, well, isn't isn't that, how do you think that's going to make her feel? Don't you think that's demeaning to women? Can't a woman do anything that a man can do? I can do anything you can do. I can do anything better than you. Um, Well, the only way for those questions to have teeth is if you you believe feminism. The only only way to make sense of those is not if you come from the Bible and you say, well, this is what the Bible says. But if you are constrained, that's actually how you see ideologies in your head that you need to throw away. When you feel uncomfortable where the Bible doesn't feel uncomfortable, you should never flinch when reading the scriptures. You should go, this is what the eternal, all-wise, perfect God says. And we get uncomfortable in conversations about sexuality and gender roles and alcohol and so many other places where the Bible is just not uncomfortable and is clear. Churches like this, even conservative churches, which I've been a part of, when, <clears throat> when there is a, a lessening or a, a lowering of the theological things that are taught, a, a minimization of the, the theology, the, the things that we must believe, and I'm not saying that there's not difficult issues. I'm not saying that it's all, <laughs> it's all as clear. Uh, the Sunday school this morning would know that, that there are certain questions I go, well, that's a little bit harder. <laughs> so that's not to say that there are not more or less difficult things. But what we need to know is that we, we need to keep the bar high where the Bible keeps it high so that we can say that there is not equality of roles between men and women. The Bible does not teach that. <clears throat> when churches are pressed by the culture and have embraced those ideas, they, they might say, well, we're not going to make 
um, women uh, deacons or elders, but we'll make a woman's director position. Or we'll make a, a female whatever over women when, <clears throat> in fact of the matter, the Bible thinks it's sufficient. God thought it was sufficient to order our life in a particular sort of way. He thought it was sufficient to have a male leadership in the church as he thinks it's sufficient to have male leadership in the home and in the world. We are equal in terms of our intrinsic value before God. (laughs) We're also equally sinful before God and equally need Christ as our savior. We are equal in many regards, but not in the area of authority. Ideally, we are supposed to pursue what God has said in terms of authority, which is that man is the head. There is a a patriarchy. The Bible promotes patriarchy. I don't know if you know that word. Uh, It just means father rule. There are city fathers and church fathers and Fathers at home, and they're supposed to rule and rule well. And women are helpers who come alongside that mission led, and they are fundamental and necessary and good. Um, And I don't want to. I don't want to go off any further on that. What I want to say is, we need to be have the bar as high as we can and make principled concessions along the way and do do life together this way and what is the balance then this is this is what we feel we feel a tension when it comes to being rigid theologically rigid this is true nothing else is true people have a hard time. What's, what's the balance to that? Well, what the balance I've said is not compromise. That, that's, not, that's not really the balance. The balance by and large is compassion. We should understand where our culture is at, extremely confused about the basics. We should, we should be able to help people, illuminate for people and say, well, I have people in mind right now that I could go to and bring this, and they get really upset if I said uh, men lead, even even in the even in the home, but especially in the church. I could say that, and they would get really upset. And <clears throat> so, to a question of demeaning, I said, "Well, does does God demean women? Does 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 God forbid us from any good thing? Does does God um, withhold good from us?" We're about to read in scripture next week. Absolutely, from Romans 8. Absolutely not. He sent his son to die for us. He withholds absolutely nothing that we need. His designs for us, even if they're countercultural, are wonderful and perfect and good and right. It is God who is right. Let all men be a liar. <clears throat> we ought to pursue a pure and robust and biblical faithfulness out to the edges of life in so much as we can make good application of the scriptures. We should create 
good traditions and link arms insofar as we can with other like-minded brothers and sisters with the same vision. And along the way, since the whole church is in process somewhere, make principled concessions without lowering the bar to the lowest common denominator. That's my extended application. That's where I leave it here. Let me just say a couple things in relation to Acts chapter 8 that you do need to know. Look in verse 28 or 38, excuse me, and following. So, and he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down in the water and Philip in the eunuch both and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord literally, uh, this other, the other text in scripture, this is uh, where our dispensational friends want to say raptured, raptured away is the word, snatched away, Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more. Why? Because he was tra- teleported from one place to another supernaturally. And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So first of all, the, the joy of, of, of the eunuch. Philip undergoes this trans, transformative movement from one place to the other. We see that a couple times in the gospels. I think maybe one more time in Acts, but I didn't get a chance to look. <clears throat> and then the eunuch goes away, not seeing him anymore and rejoicing. That's because the gospel's been extended to him. This is what we call the joy of salvation. He, as a foreigner who could never be a part of the people of God fully, would always be restricted in his access, has now come into all the promises of God such that he can enter into the temple now, the true temple in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 makes this clear when it says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith for as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And therefore there is neither Jew nor Greek neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The Ethiopian eunuch, through Christ, has become a child of Abraham and has full access to all the promises of Israel because he is part of true Israel, just like every other Gentile who has come to Christ. That's why he's happy. There's no better news than being in Christ Jesus, full of all the promises of God. Now, Judea, Samaria, you'll know, <clears throat> you might not know where Azotus is on your, but if you have a Bible map, I encourage you to look at it. But the glorious thing that we see here is when he's transported, he finds himself at Azotus. Judea and Samaria are are next to each other. It's like a, it's like a set region. And Azotus is at the very, very bottom of Judea. So he, he's at the, the very 
lower edge of Judea, and then he preaches the gospel all the way up to not Caesarea Philippi, but Caesarea. Go find that on your map. And it's at the very top of Samaria. We're told that because Jesus himself prophesied in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. This portion of Acts is fulfilled. You have seen the gospel expanded, not just in Jerusalem, but beyond into the wider region, such that Judea, Samaria has the gospels. And if you've followed along, Acts 1.8 now is prepping you, especially with saving an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, that, that the gospel is going further. It, it is going to the distant regions of the earth, even in terms of the people who are saved. That is, this gospel has turned outward and it will continue to go outward until it comes across the sea and reaches us, right? We, We are recipients of the gospel moving outward to the ends of the earth. So our hope is this, that likewise, Uh, According to the promise of of chapter 1, verse 8, that the gospel will go out, all the promises of Scripture for us in Christ uh, remain the same, that they will all be accomplished in the Lord's timing. It will only be to the unadulterated and glorious proclamation and power of the gospel that we'll see a text like Isaiah 2 fulfilled, where the nations will stream to God, and those things will be fulfilled in his time. Our duties now as citizens, as churchmen, as husbands, as wives, as children, as singles, is to let our devotion to Christ be full expansive, ever-growing, and uh, rigid insofar as we understand the faith clearly. And in that kind of church, in that kind of home, in that, in that kind of nation even, those who are, um, the, where, where there is a, a constituent body of believers who are full-throated and uncompromising in their obedience, that is where we will see the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That's where cultures will change. That's where our very own, our lives and our marriages and our relationships with our kids, that's where it changes when we say um, the Bible speaks to all of it extensively. And because we need help in doing that, That's the hard work where it comes in for you and I in every realm. We need to pray and ask God's blessing on that. Let us pray together.